Hey there, where have you been? Welcome to the No Jet Stress podcast, the show that helps you maintain optimal health and peak performance as a road warrior, no matter how much you travel. I'm your host, Christopher Babiodi, traveler wellness advocate, nutritional therapist, author, and ex-flight attendant of 20 years at British Airways, one of the UK's largest airlines. In part two, we ended the conversation looking at the role the individual has to play when it comes to looking after their own wellness while on business travel. In part three, we start the conversation about how getting the right fit candidate for business travel or expat positions is more than just about the job. Okay, so it sounds like you're more centered on kind of the individual perspective, getting the the, the traveler to be more aware of their own well-being status and the steps they can take to improve their well-being. Yes. Or maybe that's an essential first step. Correct. Essential uh-huh. first step. Yeah. yeah. Essential yeah, first yeah. step. Otherwise, I think it's hard to build anything else on that because if that had been in place, maybe we wouldn't so much be in the situation we are now where we have corporate wellness programs that are there, but they're in name only. They don't necessarily cater to our audience and therefore there's no real uptake. Well, I'll tell you an interesting parallel that might be worth exploring with another guest on your show, Chris, is the the very well-known, very well-recognized issue of finding employees who are willing to take expat positions overseas. This is, I mean, for any company that has a multinational or, you know, certainly a global footprint, this is a big challenge. And I've talked to enough of these people to understand, enough of the HR people to understand that they, they, the companies that do this well will screen the candidates for expat positions, not just on their functional fit with the role that they need to play over there, but on the very related kind of well-being parallel dimensions, if you will, of how supportive is you, are you going to be? How supportive is your family going to be of this of this move? Is is a different language? You know, is is the local language different from what you're able to speak? Is your entire family? You know, does anyone have any additional language fluency? What are the what are the ages of your kids that are going over? You know, because we can predict. That if they're in high school, this is going to be a tougher, a tougher, you know, tougher go right. for them than it is if they're in second grade or third grade, you know, whatever. What what is your what is your spouse? What is the trailing spouse's level of interest in this or level of concern? Because that has a huge bearing. If you're not married, what's your SO? How how does he or she feel about this? I mean, there are a number of questions that the HR people have become really good at asking to screen candidates for expat positions. That just gets, that helps choose the right person to go. But what's really interesting is that when these expat families come back from being overseas for four or five years, many of them flounder and their and their kids will flounder because there's such a disruption on the re-entry back to normal. So there's some parallels here that I think about from the road warrior, which would be interesting. And it might be interesting to get you to interview somebody who's really adept at counseling road warriors. So just let me know if, you, if, if you'd if like to, to, to get a guest on your show. 
I know somebody I think that would be a great candidate for that. I'd love to. I think, you know, the more sides we can get to this conversation, definitely the better. And yeah, I, I hear I hear those parallels as you as you mentioned them. So we we have kind of sort of like talked about it in passing, but one of the questions posed is where should travel well-being sit in a managed travel program? It's got to be HR. It's got to be HR? I think so. I don't think anyone else is going to care enough. If it's not obvious to our audience, why should HR care more considering they have a broad portfolio of other people and other functions who don't travel? Because the finance and the procurement people don't have the heart for it. (laughs) (laughs) The HR folks will. Scott, I think you've just redeemed yourself from my previous jibe of you talking in procurement-centric language as such. But yes, yeah, that kind of like has to be a great answer. My concern, I guess, which you've blown out of the water in this respect, is that do they have enough bandwidth to do this? If it's a large... Sure. I mean, it's it comes back to making this a priority. And oftentimes that comes back to building a case. So there do need to be some numbers put around this, or, you know, it's just hard for management to reprioritize time and money, you know, toward this, because it means taking those two things away from something else. So you've got to give executives a business case that says, this is a good idea. You know, we, we need to believe this is a good idea, or here's a pilot that we can run. And then we'll have a much better idea of, you know, if this is really valuable or or not. Yeah. Um, when part of the conversation becomes the traveler knows what he has to do in that scenario, it's not a matter of HR having to chase all of their travelers, but there'd be willingness on their part to do some of the heavy lifting themselves. I don't think any uh, HR department has the ability to sort of like devote wholesale resources to to doing that on behalf of the traveler. But, Traveler has to well, 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 no, I, I, I don't think so. I, I, I think an HR group could relatively easily, once they know the, the subpopulation, the road warriors, right. once they know who those folks are, it would be relatively easy for them to send out, you know, some pulse checks, some surveys, you know, a one question survey once every two weeks or a three question survey, you know, or I mean, you can just get the idea that. Once they've targeted this population of employees, creating a customized questionnaire takes, you know, relatively little time to set up. And then they can just repeat that. And then they can get some trending. And if you want to combine that with your heart rate variability data, if that's an optional input, now they've got even more to look at. And then if they also start, if management asks these travelers to do some sort of post-trip assessment of how successful the trips were, now we're getting somewhere. HR can easily monitor the attrition rate. So these are not hard things for them to do once they know the population of road warriors. But so I, I HR, can HR and, and I'm 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 going to the nitty-gritty here. Can HR force compliance? Can H does HR need to force compliance for these? road warriors and by that i mean sleeping enough time or managing their sleep and oh eating. good God, they no. can't do that so yeah no. so no. that's where i'm saying no. you wouldn't ask them to you wouldn't ask them to because that seems out of place but sometimes i think well yeah sometimes i think that's where it falls down because if everyone were to 
get the right amount of sleep, get the right around type of food. And we all come from different cultures and different backgrounds and understandings of what these things mean might not necessarily lend itself to doing the work that needs to get the results that we're all we all know are going to benefit us so i think for me from my perspective as someone who's been coaching some people in these areas i think that's where the rubber hits the road how do you get compliance with these people that's going to what, help them let's not think about compliance because that's a top down kind of command and control right culture right, right? i think we both agree that the right way to go is to get the road warriors to lean forward, sure. right? To recognize that there is a better way. Maybe they're already doing it, so good for them, but many of them aren't. So those that aren't as not as not as in a good a place on their well-being scale, right? Yeah. Those who could improve, get them to recognize that there is an opportunity to improve and there is a payoff from doing this. And there is a framework to get them from where they are now to where they might want to be. So, but I think going back to HR's role, HR has a very constructive and a very practical role to provide in providing some really good data around just assessing people where they are now and probably correlating, you know, the, the successful road warriors, however you want to measure that with some of these traits that they've observed. So, Right. Imagine all, all road warriors taking a pre-trip, you know, are you fit to fly sort of thing? Are you fit to travel? Here are five questions, 10 questions that, you know, kind of one to five, answer them quickly, get a score. Go on your trip, of course, but just know that we're going to use that information to kind of put a bigger picture together. And when you come back, tell us how you think you did in terms of professional success and, and success for the company. So something like that. Now we've got the data, I think, to go back to the travelers and to their managers and say, look, there's a gap here. A lot of the people who scored low on this fit to travel assessment didn't perform as well as this group over here that scored higher on the fit to travel and scored scored better on the successful trip. So there's an opportunity here. And once you kind of frame that now you can have a really constructive conversation about how to get more buy-in for behaving the way that leads to better traveler wellness well said yeah my correction non-compliance as i used it wasn't from the organizational structure it's Mm. for me more came from the idea of when you work with a client in nutritional therapy which is one of the uh, skill sets that i have you talk about non-compliance as in you can give a recommendation but if the person doesn't use it then they are non-compliant in that respect oh, I see. Taken. I see. thank you but point okay. taken yeah because at the end of the day actually this is a really good jumping off point to talk about company culture and i say that because it's my belief that a good traveler well-being culture can only exist in a good company culture be that large or small because you need support. You need support from, like you said, the expatriates that travel abroad, the family and where the kids are and the organization that they're with, that type of support. But you also need support maybe from fellow travelers on the road who are part of your company and so on and so forth. So that ties into company culture. And I mean, I guess we could go off on some of the things that happen 
in that regard, whereas a, a lot of people see the fact that people travel so often as a glamorous thing. Okay, I think that wears off after a couple of years, <laughs> if not sooner, depending on the initial experiences one has. And therefore, there might be some, I don't know, some friction in, in that context. But at the same time, you can't have, I believe you can't have a a well-functioning traveler wellness culture unless you have a good workplace culture. Fair comment? Yeah, probably true. Sure. No, but that I'd people like won't try, that, but you're going. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like to think that these road warriors are a fairly independent lot, meaning they're for the for the typical transient traveler. They typically don't travel in groups, right? They're it's by themselves or maybe with a colleague or you know it's rarely with the same colleague on a lot of trips but you know generally they're they're fairly independent travelers they're very used to kind of relying on themselves and dealing with the chaos and the disruption and kind of figuring things out on the fly and that sort of thing so i could imagine that if you were successful in targeting this well-being construct to a road warrior, whether or not their culture, the company culture aligned with that, I think you could imagine them adopt, wanting to adopt, you know, what's best for them because. Yeah, because it's best for right, them. Because it's yeah. just, it's best for them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For their company. Their company may not fund it, but I can't imagine any company saying, no, 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 we, 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 we like you eating it the fast food places you know <laughs> we, right. we, we yeah. don't want you going to eat at whole foods <laughs> you know take and that is, has been my experience in terms of people who have not waited for a corporate wellness program to exactly fit their requirement before reaching out saying you know, i need help in this respect because my program doesn't provide x y or z i guess i'm just trying to think of how to get that message out to as many organizations people as possible and for me the shortcut was okay let's have a supportive workplace culture that a traveler well-being culture can live within and therefore sure if you're going to prioritize you'd like to find those companies that have that sure that you know supportive culture to begin with yes but i want to i want to just for a minute go into how and you may already have this. Pardon me if if you do, and I just am not aware of it. But what what do we have out there that could serve as a not just fit to fly in in you know on the airplane, but fit to travel, fit to fit to be a road warrior? What do we have in terms of our ability to make a fairly painless, lightweight assessment for these road warriors to take just to just to orient themselves as to you know how they stack up against the average road warrior? A very interesting question. I, because of the roots of my conversations and how I've developed the understanding that I have right now are embedded in the performance athlete who happens to travel, I would look towards that kind of data. And they have, they the data sort of like is divided into sort of like natural interventions that, prep someone ready for travel and pharmaceutical. And I'm not a fan of pharmaceutical. So again, it comes back to the natural. So it's kind of like... No, no, I think we're you're going... Yeah, I, I know you're, the study you're referring to, I, I read that with, with some interest. I'm thinking more of if you had... If you were 
able to ask a thousand road warriors 10 questions, survey, survey based, 10 questions. Do we know what those 10 questions would be in order to assess their fitness to travel? I would go down the lines of frequency of travel. Be one question. Do they enjoy travel? Okay. How long, you know, how many trips do they do a year? First, I'd want to categorize what we've kind of like said it already, but I'd want to categorize them as, you know, are they at the extreme end of the spectrum? And, in the sure. middle? and you know, th there'll be those kind of factors. Then I would start asking basic questions like, do you drink? Do you take supplements? What's your baseline of health right now? Do you have any pre-existing conditions? And things of that nature to see where they are. Because, and I, I it's... Uh, <clears throat> My my tool of choice, as I've said, is heart rate variability. And all those things that are related to their individual health will put them somewhere on the spectrum of what is their heart rate variability now and how uh, can you... Yeah, uh, that strikes me as pretty, frankly, a little narrow. A little narrow. Might be empirically good, might be physiologically indicative. But I, I'm thinking more about questions that you can ask a, a road warrior to assess their general level of well-being, kind of fit to travel. So a question, something like, on a scale of one to five, how supportive is your spouse, SO, family of you taking frequent business trips? How how much do you look forward to the, the average business trip that you take? I mean, some somewhat generalized questions but meant to get at kind of their attitude about traveling, their anxieties, if any, about traveling, certainly some some physical health assessment, you know, mental, emotional. I mean, I, I don't know what the questions are, but I'm gathering from you, Chris, that you're not aware of any assessment tool like this. There isn't an assessment tool per se like that. Or when you asked me the question the second time, my mind went straight to what do, if I'm going to work with someone, what do I ask them? And then I go down the frequency of travel and that kind of thing. So that's getting to know the traveler, right? Yeah, but I that doesn't. So somebody who travels frequently isn't inherently more or less fit to travel than someone else. Someone who travels frequently isn't less more or less than someone else. So I think the question then is where do you draw? The, where is the baseline? That's what we're trying to establish, right? What what does good look like? Good for me, I think there's, I, I don't think there's one answer as to what good looks like, but I understand the need to want to quantify that so we can take that into corporates or whatever it is and, and measure our constituency against that to see where we can start to intervene. I think it's very individual. I don't know a, a specific tool that's out there already that can, can give that kind of an answer, but I think it's a, it's a matter of just, asking some questions i'm asking questions but it it's it, it spans the idea of physiological health and, and and some of those things that we've talked about before but yeah that's that's where i would that's how i would go about that if i had to put something together i don't know that there's a tool that's out there right now that does that so you should make one <laughs> i i <laughs> Right. Well, I'll go and revise what I've got and then add some of the, the points you, you rightly make in this conversation. I think your audio has just gone funny a bit slightly. Has it? Yeah, that's better. Back, back to good. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. Better. So I think, yeah, you should make one. I mean, 
It's definitely my perspective generally is that you, you want you need to quantify stuff to have more credible conversations and to identify opportunities. I mean, we can certainly tackle the subjective nature of this because anybody that's traveled can relate to these issues of, you know, being kind of looking forward to a trip or not looking forward to a trip or just feeling like crap when you get back from a trip. I mean, you know, we've all been there. But to kind of synthesize what good looks like, I think would be a huge step for for everyone in in your in your yeah, in your pursuit of improving traveler well-being. So is the goal of making traveler well-being scientific not part answer to that question that you just asked? I think it's a necessary it's a necessary step, I think, if you really want to provide benefit to you know the industry writ large. Okay. 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 So then what would you say are one of the questions that we've spoke, we've discussed offline is what would you say are the barriers to implementing the traveler well-being program for a company or for an for individual a company? Yeah, yeah. Let, let's talk. Yeah, because that's on at scale. Yeah, there has to be there has to be a sense of you know alarm about doing nothing. Right. Some people use the the burning platform analogy, but the, it, you've got to be able to go to management with something that's going to motivate them to change whatever they're doing and to invest in this. And that, again, that means taking time and money away from something else, a lower priority. So you've got to show them, you know, the gap, the the problem, and you've got to show them, a, you know, a workable path forward. So you can't just you can paint. You can start by just painting the problem, but they're going to want to know well, what should we do, and you should have some answers for that. Does cost come into it? Uh, I think I know the answer. That it shouldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does, but that's part. It's part of framing. You know, the cost benefit trade off. Okay. And it strikes me, off the cuff, that this is a pretty high payoff. I don't think the cost of implementing generally what we've been talking about is necessarily going to be real high relative to the benefits. The, uh, here's something that your audience might find interesting. When we talk about the benefits, specifically of road warriors, research that I did a few years ago after I analyzed the financial statements of over 400 publicly traded companies, most of which were US-based, 50 were, were based uh, out of the FTSE 100 in, in the UK. There's a, there's a way to estimate the the multiple, the the value add per employee by looking at the financial statements and knowing the number of employees in the organization. I did that across 40 different industries using this data. And this multiple does vary by industry a lot. So for example, the industry that Google was in has a multiple, a value add per employee of something approaching 12, 12 times the, the employee's average annual salary is how much value add that employee adds, 12 times their average annual salary. For a company in the kind of commodity manufacturing business, the multiple gets closer to 1 or 1.5. The average across all industries, 4 
four times the the annual salary of the employee is how much value add we typically add. Okay, so the average road warrior from research that we did a few years ago makes roughly $150,000 a year US. So the average value add for a US-based road warrior is roughly $600,000 a year. Now we've got something to work with that says, right, if the, if the road warriors that we're putting on the field are inhibited by poor well-being and they're only getting 70% value add compared to those that are you know, scoring higher on the well-being assessment, now we can begin to quantify the benefit of improving the road warrior's well-being. So it needs an approach something like that. I understand that, and I don't necessarily like <laughs> math. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> so I love that. That is something that you can take to people and think, okay, okay, that's, yeah, that, that's in a nutshell. That is a beautiful way of, of, summing, yeah. of summing it up. I hope we can make progress in this area. For me, the levers are the fact that we are post-COVID. Well, can I still say we're post-COVID? But the the impetus is great. And I think there are technology companies that recognize that, whether it's the apples of the world that are focusing more on the fitness side and the tools that we can actually have a better fitness conversation and the kinds of things that we can bring together to, to, to demonstrate the value for the individual as well as for the companies without them having to invest bundles and bundles of money, which is one of their pain points, I guess, as you say, time and resources having to come from somewhere else to put into another area need to be justified. I think the payoff for doing it is, as you say, very, very, very attractive. I'd love to have more of this conversation with you. I really appreciate your time here. To Just to end on a lighter note, I tend to ask my guests this, what would you say is your favorite destination and why? Yeah, so two cities pop out as being fascinating, Bangalore and Barcelona. Oh, okay. I yeah. see those coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with Bangalore just because uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's so different from what most of us in you know, Western civilization experience. <laughs> I went over there for three weeks back in the, the mid-aught for kind of a, a kind of a get acquainted with our operations over there at the time. I just loved the the culture, the energy, the chaotic growth that was going on. The food was fantastic. This 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 element, this thread of British civility that's that's just woven throughout the Indian culture was just fantastic. It was so interesting. People were really friendly. It was just it was just a great experience to the point where I tried to convince my wife to take our at the at the time our 10-year-old daughter out of school and go live in India for a year. Wow. You know? And I, unfortunately we couldn't we couldn't make that work, but that's how fascinated I was with Bangalore as a destination. Lovely. I've been myself and I must say that 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 sense of Indians of British civility that you mentioned was widely apparent in our hotel that we stayed in at the time that was built in, I think it was either 1985, but had that old worldly feel of like a British kind of like smoking club type energy thing to it. And yeah, I love the city as well. Yeah, really interesting choice, really nice choice uh, and a nice point to, to end the program on. Scott, 
Thank you so much. Lots to dig into here. If if my audience wants to dig into the kind of work you do, where is the best place that they can find you? Yeah, tclara, T-C-L-A-R-A.com. LinkedIn is always a good choice. Always happy to connect with folks on LinkedIn and happy to share any of the, the white papers or other research that we've done on, on request. So happy to help. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. We really enjoyed our discussion. Lots of food for thought there. Terrific, and, Chris. Uh, yeah, appreciate it. Good. Good stuff. Thank you.